0: Today it is my great honor and pleasure to have my good friend and younger brother from another mother, Jake Clemens, on the program. Jake, welcome. How's it going, man? It's going great, Tom. Jake is, of course, the uh, saxophone player for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and is the nephew of the legendary Clarence Clemens, who, of course, was Bruce's first lieutenant in the E Street Band for many years. On this particular edition of Maximum Firepower, we are going to be talking about race and the E Street Band, uh, where those two things intersect. And so, the first thing I want to uh, talk with you, Jake, is like you and I have toured the world uh, with the E Street Band in a multi-ethnic band with you know people of various shades and you know singers and horn play and this 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 that and the other. But for many many years, it was just Clarence and you know, as a huge Bruce Springsteen fan myself, and like, I am not a casual Bruce Springsteen fan. I always have trouble referring to Bruce Springsteen as a friend because he's the only friend I have to whom I subscribe to a fanzine about, you know, but I would find myself at Bruce Springsteen shows as literally the only black dude, the only one every time. And so, you know, then I would go backstage and I'd see Clarence sometimes. And, and, you know, he was the only black guy on stage. I was the only black guy out there in the crowd. And I was just like, how is it for you? Like, what is that experience like? Because I know as an audience member, it's a little strange. It's like I deeply connect with these songs, and yet I'm alone in a way. And it seems like Clarence mm-hmm. deeply connected with those songs, and at least one re- with regards to Melanin, you know, was was alone in that way. Did you and he ever have discussions about his being the only African-American in the E Street Band?
1: Well, I mean, it wasn't true to begin with. Um, yes, you know, correct. Yeah, yeah, started, yeah. Right? There was, that's right. Th- that's right. Three, right?
0: That's right. and uh, Un- Until until seven. I mean, I guess we're talking about sort of post-75, correct?
1: Well, like until the band broke, basically, right? Yeah, it yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Classic tale. Uh, <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, at the time, you know, there's Davis Nationalist and, 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 and uh, Boom Carter and, uh, and Clarence. And they're they coming from Asbury Park, man, you know? I mean, Clarence yeah. was born and raised in Virginia, Chesapeake, Virginia. Yep, um, yep. I mean, I don't wanna, I'm not trying to talk bad about any communities, but, like, it was a very divided place at the time that being said his parents really made a point you know to pass down this notion to their kids that like race is not a wall it's it's a hurdle you know like, mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. there's nothing that you're not going to be able to do like you're going to do everything that you can and you're not allowed to use that as an excuse you have to rise above it and uh you know like their neighbors were white they had the yeah first color tv on the block and the white kids would come over and watch tv i mean yeah. i grew up with my uncle dave who was uh like one of Clarence's best friends as a kid. And I was probably 18 when it dawned on me, Uncle Dave was Caucasian. Wait, Uncle Dave, is he my uncle, uncle? Or would you just call him uncle? Because, (laughs) you know, there's this disconnect. But, uh, you know, so anyway, the point is, going from that kind of a background and then into Asbury Park and still like this really stark divide and these race riots that were going on and and a Mm -hmm. really intense time. And this is me talking here, but I, I feel that like Clarence often felt this sense of like he was an ambassador, you know. Yeah. That he had to stand in that role, you know, as an ambassador for the greater good and for who we are as a whole. We you know that there is this ability to be a union and to to be a human species and uh, and to promote
0: love and joy within that. The public relationship of Bruce Springsteen and Clarence Clemens was unprecedented in rock and roll music. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it was, no one was beating you over the head with a message of racial unity. It was on the cover of born to run. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like it was, and it was clear that while the, you know, the E street band, you know, it was Bruce Springsteen and the E street band that Clarence Clemens was the first Lieutenant, you know what I mean? Like, like, and it was, and at every show I was ever at, every fan of Bruce Springsteen loves the E street Band, And every fan of Bruce Springsteen really loves Clarence Clemens. Um, Dave Marsh wrote that Bruce and Clarence could not pull down the tower in which America is shackled. No two humans could do that, but they inflicted their share of damage. They were these two guys who imagined that if they acted free, then other people would understand better that it was possible to be free. And there's the story of the Amnesty International Tour. I don't know if Clarence ever shared this with you. The Amnesty International oh, yeah. Tour. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> I'd like to hear your take on it. So the Amnesty International Tour, I think, was 1987, 88, something like that, where Bruce Springsteen, and the, yeah. band, the biggest band in the world, and they're touring everywhere supporting Amnesty International, and they're playing a show in the Ivory Coast. In Africa. And it is a stadium with (laughs) 50,000 all black faces, you know, and 100% black faces, people who maybe were not familiar with the video for Dancing in the Dark, you know. And I think it was a real challenge for the band. And Clarence said, Now you know how I feel. At every, sh- <laughs> <laughs> At every show we've ever played in the entire history of yeah. the band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, what was, yeah. what was, uh, how did Clarence uh, relay that? And yeah, the show I mean, went smashing you know, Clarence, well, I understand. Yeah.
1: Clarence talked about like looking around and seeing this sea of beautiful black faces and like trees yeah. with purple flowers. And, and his initial response was like, Am I in heaven? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Am I in heaven? You know. Yeah, it was a huge and beautiful moment for him. I can't even picture what that experience would have been like. The closest thing that I could imagine was like we played Rock and Rio in Portugal to an audience that was very unfamiliar with Bruce's music. So, Mm -hmm. you know, just a reaction from the audience, this huge sea of people and trying to win them over on first listen. I imagine it's similar to that, uh,
0: to that experience. This is Tom Morello. You're listening to Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. We're talking about race on E Street with Jake Clemens, this fantastic saxophone player from the E Street Band, Clarence Clemens' nephew.
1: It was always interesting to me watching Clarence on stage. The thing about looking at an audience of, you know, 20 to 80,000 people, generally speaking, like there's a sense of like homogenization that like, you know, in with the, the aesthetic of the crowd. So when you have someone there who is not Caucasian and, and especially who's darker skin, like, you know, like you can kind of pinpoint them. From a distance. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And <laughs> I, I would always know when Clarence, when there's another black person there, because Clarence would eyeball that person like, you know.
0: Like, <laughs> <laughs> I see really? you. Uh, I see yeah. you. I'm here, too. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think that's something that Bruce Springsteen, who has, you know, the, the the themes of his songs are that of equality and racial justice, and yet the audience is Homogeneous. And there was a time in the sort of the height of Bruce Springsteen mania where he had Arthur Baker do some remixes like there were urban remixes of Bruce mm-hmm. Springsteen songs. I think that that was maybe the genesis of the, the High Hope song maybe came from that period of there was a definite attempt to build a bridge to I, well, I'm not sure if it was actually urban radio, but to connect in a way mm-hmm. that I think eventually proved unsuccessful perhaps while it may have been unsuccessful in swaying a black audience, I think that Springsteen's voice has reached the ears of many in white America. And it's important as white, we'll call them students of Springsteen, to speak against racism. Bruce Springsteen, Mm -hmm. someone they love, respect, and admire, speaks against racism. And that is modeling a behavior. And also, I think it's important for those who are paying attention in the African-American community to see that there is someone— like Bruce yeah. Springsteen, who is speaking against racism. Whether mm-hmm. or not you have a hit on Power 106, that's likely not going to happen. But simply modeling that example of racial justice in your music and activities, I think, can be very important. And, I mean, yeah. like
1: his song, you know, he's got plenty of songs that have been picked up by black artists that have done some amazing things. I mean, you know, Pink Cadillac, for example, you know, there's a prime example, you
0: know? Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. What other ones are you? Because th- I think that's an important thing too. like those songs can translate beyond the East Street reading of them. Other than Pink Cadillac, what what else would, would you?
1: Uh, John Legend did a cover of uh, Dancing in the Dark. It was beautiful. Of course.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. A, I think that that's crucial. Now, let's talk about like sort of where the rubber hits the road. And there's a very sort of important moment in the history of less so the East Street. But it was the Seeger Sessions band that played the Jazz Fest show in the immediate aftermath of the natural disaster of the Katrina hurricane that became a man-made catastrophe that had a Mm. lot of racial overtones to it. And Bruce rewrote the lyrics to how can a poor man stand such times and live to specifically relate to George W. Bush's negligence of not just the city, but particularly the black community. community there. And as a fan of the band, like that show really sort of resonated to me and that it was Bruce Springsteen, the very famous, Caucasian artist, you know, who was sort of stepping into an important role for the world to see. And I think that that, like we we're just talking about, like modeling a behavior of, of mm-hmm. standing for racial justice is very much what happened on that day.
1: I love that point of Bruce's audience being able to see him standing in the gap. Um, and and how significant that is uh, and, you know, for, for the audience to respond to. It makes me think about a lot of the marches and, and protests that we saw in 2020. And, yeah. um, I remember, I remember when stuff started taking off and how hard of a, t- a time it was for me personally, you know, just, uh, just having to like, you know, deal with this reckoning in myself of, uh, other people recognizing your pain that you were trying to ignore,
0: you know? Yes. Um, yes. For, for, yes.
1: For, for, for myself and like how hard that was and exhausting. And, um, and then at one point I became concerned that I would soon become angry that that, that it would become a, a fashionable fad. And I remember thinking to myself, and I even said to some friends, you know, like, I appreciate that people are out there protesting. I appreciate that there's marches happening. But, like, until until there's a majority of Caucasians out there in the streets, this thing's going to, like, just die out. Mm-hmm. People who in this country have the, have the power need to be the ones that are willing to disperse that power. And yeah. um, I was... Ecstatic to see as time went by that that, you know, that ratio became yeah. more representative of what the country looked like. And I wonder how significant, you know, the presence of artists like Bruce and A e Street, you know, like what, what kind of significance that may have had you know over the last 40 years in, in preparing for a moment like this.
0: It's certainly part of the cocktail that that it resonates. Like, I was the only black person in an all-white town in Libertyville, Illinois, growing up there. And growing Mm -hmm. up there, you know, I saw a couple of nooses once somebody was standing in the parking lot of a Browns chicken swinging a noose at me and told me to get in the trunk of their car with some other language attached to that as well. Uh, There was a noose in my family's garage and and whatnot. But in the summer of 2020, there was a Black Lives Matter rally, which was attended by about a thousand, in a town of 20,000 people, was attended by about a thousand Mm -hmm. people where they had speakers from some of the African american surrounding communities they had an iman speak and then there was a march of you know one thousand white people down that same street where the dude had once swung a noose at me wow you know and it was an interesting it it inspired me to i wrote a song called stand up with the guy from imagine dragons and some other people you know you know based on that but it was the idea that there's a lot of stuff in the ether that can you know change and i was talking to my friend Like Riley, he has sons who are of high school age. And I was talking with them while they were at the rally and how like that afternoon changed their lives. And it made them like it made them look at the place they were from in a different way and see them be able to recognize themselves as agents of change, Mm. even though they were from this place where you were not expected, required, or it was totally okay to not be an agent of change. You know, on that afternoon, they realized that they, too, might have their hands on the steering wheel of history. And yeah. you know that's yeah. a thing. That's a thing. That's um, so I want I want to I want to talk for a minute about specific songs. And in in February of 1999, 23-year-old Ghanaian immigrant named Amadou Diallo was shot 19 times by four police officers while he stood in the entryway of his apartment building in the Bronx in New York City. Diallo was unarmed. The officer shot 41 times and Diallo died. At the time, Springsteen and the E Street Band were in the midst of a reunion tour. In the wake of Diallo's shooting, Springsteen wrote a song titled American Skin. The subtitle is 41 Shots. In the song, he he sings Lena gets her son ready for school she says on these streets Charles you've got to understand the rules if an officer stops you promise you'll always be polite that you'll never run away promise mama you'll keep your hands in sight is it a gun is it a knife is it a wallet this is your life it ain't no secret it ain't no secret no secret my friend you can get killed just for living in your American skin Springsteen first played American Skin in Atlanta during the reunion tour. It was big news, particularly in the New York press, as the tour concluded with a 10-night stand at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Springsteen played American Skin every night of the stand at the Garden, despite protests from the New York City Police Department and the Police Benevolence Association. Recording of the song... From one of these performances, which is serious and haunting, was included on the DVD release after the tour. You can hear booze in the background. The repetition of 41 shots by Springsteen and other members of the band seemingly 41 times, even if not really, serves as the song's heartbeat. I was at that show... I was at the last show of the Madison Garden Stand. I had just come off of a Rage Against the Machine Asian tour, dropped my bags in L.A., and flew to New York City to catch the— it was the last show of the reunion tour. We didn't know if there was going to be another show. It was the the last show. It was, uh, I think, July 1st, 2000. And got there, jet lagging, My ass off. You went to soundcheck was sitting there, you know, like as a Springsteen fan, like I'm the old I'm sitting there in this empty Madison Square Garden watching soundcheck, watching them play the song. And then afterwards, got to talk with Bruce about it. You know, I commended him on, you know, having the courage to play that song, challenging his audience by playing that song, many of whom were not ready for it, playing the song mm-hmm. in New York City with you know police officers turning their backs or not providing. As, on the one hand, I said you know, welcome to the club. That had been my entire career up to that point. Like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I mean, this is kind of, for me this is kind of a Tuesday, man. This is kind of like another Tuesday. <laughs> I, I was police protesting every show for sure. like 10 years in Rage Against the Machine. But in that context, for music that reaches such a broad span of the political spectrum to, you know, gut that one out every single night was yeah. really- I think pretty heroic. So then later on, Bruce wanted to do the a recorded version of the song, like a proper album version of the song. He asked me to play guitar, and I was honored to ask me to play guitar. Now, normally, when I'm doing guitar solos for records, it's kind of the first thing that comes to my mind is the one that is the take. And I might do one more take and sort of edit a little bit between the two, but I sort of trust my instincts in that regard. With American Skin, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it to, for for the life of me. I couldn't get it. Like, I wanted to play something that fit, like, the the haunting elegance of that song in a way that paid tribute to the dead and yet yeah. felt like it had a hopeful aftertaste you know and you know my my wife could, like i kept coming down i was up here forever and i kept coming down saying i don't got it and i was mad i'd go back up and get it and finally i was able to put together something that i was proud of and i think feels good with the song but what's your take on the song american skin
1: the song is is it speaks to the reality so well man night after night of playing that song on tour i always every single time every time i hear those lyrics i get flashbacks Personally, of being sixteen and hearing my father's voice, you know, about being in the car, and my dad explaining to me, like, "Listen, when you are driving, if you get pulled over, you know, he fall he walked through every single step, and he was yep. very, very particular about it. First thing you do, turn the light on in the car if it's dark, if it's night. Very quickly, reach in the glove box, take out the registration before the police officer gets out of his car. Very quickly, absolutely, he got your registration, get your driver's license out." And have your hands on the wheel, holding both documents with the window down. Yeah. Hands on the wheel, holding the documents with the window down. And you'd be very polite. Yes, sir. No, sir. Which was, I mean, like my dad was in the Marine Corps, like I had to do that to everybody everybody anyway. But like, like, you know, adamantly about this um, in particular, I have flashbacks to that, to those words. Every single time I hear those lyrics.
0: For those listeners out there who may not be familiar with what we're talking about, that is known as the talk, and it is a talk Mm -hmm. that all families of African-American lineage have to give their kids in order so they can survive encounters with the police. My sons are 9 and 11, and in the aftermath of the stuff from last summer, I've had the talk with them because they'll mess around. I'm like, 11 isn't armor, You know what I mean? You know, eleven is an armor, and just you know, you all you have to do is survive that moment. Just survive that moment, and Diallo did not. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. 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 It's it's heartbreaking, man. It's heartbreaking. You know, just the reality of of what that means. And God, you know, I I've been in experiences where things may have turned out very differently had I not done that. You know, sure, Uh, sure, driving absolutely and absolutely, and, and and you can feel it. You know, so when we're on stage playing that song. And I don't remember where we were the first time that this happened, but you know it was Trayvon Martin had had just been murdered, and again I don't remember exactly where we were, but we, we were playing this song, and and I just got overwhelmed, man. I got totally overwhelmed and like and kind of taken by the moment, and like I almost couldn't help myself, you know, my my hands just like, yeah, like just slowly just just went up, you know, and like yeah, I, felt, I really felt it was important to convey the reality of the seriousness and the weight of what I was feeling and and what and what is felt yeah and and to convey the innocence and and the you know like I'm I'm a guy like why why would I be raising my my hands on stage and the the first time it happened I was like I have to do this I I have to I have to make this statement you know yeah and and I remember also being like a little bit like I hope this doesn't hit the fan afterwards. And I was thinking about it recently. I, I don't think that Bruce and I have ever actually talked about it. Yeah, that's yeah. ever actually been discussed. Yeah. But I continued to do that every time that we played that song.
0: Yeah, and
1: and, and I and I would see the reactions in in the audience. Uh, some people would just be really upset and irritated with it. And yeah. for other people, like it, it really made uh, an impact and affected their perceptions. You know, because I'm I'm not safe. You know, you say eleven is an armor. Neither
0: yeah. is fame. Oh, hell, dude, dude, at the, at the height of the fame of Rage Against the Machine, I'm in my hometown, walking home from Downings, the local bar, cop car pulls me over, puts me in handcuffs, other car rolls, mm. this is like, this is, you know, I'm just, I'm literally walking to my mom's house, I'm just walking while black. In the town, yeah. you know, and Battle of Los Angeles is the number one record in the country. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know, on, on the newsstand down the way, Rage Against the Machines on the cover of Rolling Stone, and I'm in handcuffs at the side of the road for walking home. So, you know, I did all the stuff that you do, survived the moment, you know, managed to get one text to my mom before, like, you know, like sort of, uh, you may want to call Libertyville, whatever the tank is over here. Later on, you know, a couple months later, I ran into that police officer at the bar 'Cause it's a small wow. town. And, you know, I was in slightly more of a position of power there. <laughs> you know, he'd have a badge mm-hmm. on. There's you know, a lot of, you know, audio slave tunes pumping on the jukebox at the time. You know, and I, I confronted him about the idea of like racial profiling. It was so obvious that what that was. I mean, there's not like there's not a curfew in the town. You know, so yeah. like you know, what what was it? And he had not he had nothing to say. But it's you're absolutely right. Eleven is not armor. Hit record is not armor. There is no armor. Mm-hmm. There is no armor. A, and I think one of the like, a song like American Skin, the case of that particular murder by the police of that man, it's important to realize whenever the, when the next one happens, like what is the social context that precipitated each instance? And what were the ramifications? What happened to the officer? You know, and until Mm -hmm. there's a day where there's a zero tolerance for that, there will continue to be 41 shots, I have a feeling. Another Bruce Springsteen song, My Hometown, a question that listeners can ask themselves are, what are the race relations like in your hometown? And with me, Mm -hmm. like the story that I told, like it was one way and there seemed to be some shifting in the barometer, or at least of the awareness of what was going on in the aftermath of George Floyd. But the last thing I'd like to talk about is a Bruce Springsteen song that is not self-consciously empowering with regards to race. And that is a song, 10th Avenue Freeze Out, which is the story of the E Street Band. And in it, what you, one can reflect on is how our personal experiences shape how we interact with the world. And each of us can examine in our own life, the influences and roles the people from different backgrounds make. And clearly in that song, where it's you know Scooter and the Big Man are breaking the town in half, it is that kind of union and solidarity across the racial divide of the town that Bruce came from, across the racial divide of the United States of America that you know Clarence was raised in. Through uniting, they have created something that is in the mm. moment in that song has transcended mm. that divide. A lot of Bruce Springsteen songs are sort of veiled in such happy melodies or fun bar band jams that the weight of the underlying message is sometimes becomes secondary. And I think that that song carries a tremendous amount of weight. And despite the fact that it's like a happy party time, you know, no jam, but I'd like to get your thoughts on your role, Clarence's role in the continuing story of the 10th Avenue freeze out message.
1: You know, I I hope the message can expand. I I look forward to the next time that we're able to tour again. And um, just given how, the last two years have transpired at this point and where things are going. I, I hope that we find ourselves in a different place at the end of this quarantine stretch and that the excitement of what's possible can be felt.
0: While we've been talking about race on East Street, we should not ignore the fact that there are, you know, sort of members of the, from Jake Clemens to Steve Van Zandt to myself who have, you know, shared the stage with East Street who continue to write and record about these topics as well. Very compellingly. Mm-hmm. Jake has a burgeoning solo career. You should definitely check out his stuff if, if you haven't, as both a not just as a saxophone player, but as a singer, a talented frontman and songwriter, singer and songwriter. Um Thanks, and uh the you know, those of us who've had the good fortune to share the stage with Bruce and have Try to put our wind in the continuing sails of the message of the anti-racist message of the E Street Band. We have work of our own. You check out Steve Van Zant's records. He's always been a solidly in the corner of, of social justice. And, you know, that's what I've continued to try to do for many decades now, exhaustively. But I want to thank uh, my good friend uh, and co-conspirator, Jake Clemens, for joining us on Maximum Firepower. Jake, it is always lovely to speak with you and thank you for your excellence, your friendliness and your insight.
1: Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it, man. You're, uh... Family, you know, brother from another mother and father. Uh. Yeah,
0: yeah. I I hope to actually see you in person at some point. I'm really looking forward to it, man. Yeah, yeah, and Um, sharing the and hopefully sharing the stage again at some point too. So absolutely. All right, adios. Thank you very much. Take it easy, but take it, everybody. Maximum firepower. Over and out. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again, or listen to past shows right now on the. XM app. Search maximum firepower.